So this evening I'd like to reflect upon the quality and the theme of renunciation. I'd like to ask, do any of you have any immediate reactions to the word renunciation? <laughs> yeah? What is it? Yeah. Sure sounds like fun, doesn't it? No? <laughs> is that kind of the impression that you have, that renunciation is describing something kind of bleak and a little bit cold and lonely? Right, well, my job tonight is to change that perception. (laughs) I'd like to start with a poem by Mary Oliver that I think really speaks to this theme of renunciation. And she says, Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. I would like to explore tonight the, what the practice and the fruition of renunciation looks like. What it might mean for us in our lives as lay people and as women. And first of all, I'd really like to invite you to consider the possibility of naturalizing the word renunciation. Just even consider it. <clears throat> to let it sit in your heart and to kind of just get a sense of how it feels, renunciation. And to get a sense of what it might be for that, to be a sort of natural part of your bo- vocabulary and to befriend it. And, and to learn its landscape, its tone. I would like you to consider the possibility that even as you are here, doing this practice, walking this path as we all are, you are actually, in truth, practicing in a renunciate tradition. And that most of actually what we do when we sit on a cushion or walk on our walking path, we are actually in truth learning this landscape of renunciation, learning what it means to let go. 
And renunciation unarguably lies at the heart of the path of awakening and freedom. It said that there are two pillars that support and are central to the path of liberation. That one is renunciation and the other is compassion. And that actually both of these, renunciation and compassion, equally are responses to suffering. And that they are dedications to bringing about the end of suffering. As we sit and walk here and as we live in the territory of our own minds and bodies and hearts and lives, we do see and begin to see over and over again the way suffering and struggle is caused. We start to see that with some immediacy. And we see that when we strip away, you know, some of the layers of explanation or justification or reasoning, we do actually see that that to cling to anything at all is almost immediately to begin to suffer and to struggle. And renunciation is the response of wisdom and compassion to that suffering. I think that when we look at the world with all its torment and suffering, with all its divisions and fear, we really sense, and I know some of you really know this through your own work, through your own communities, we really sense the size of the cloth of pain (coughs) in our world. And we understand that all the true responses and all the responses that make a difference really must be rooted in compassion. It's as if suffering is a parent that has two children. And that suffering is the parent of both renunciation and compassion. Although from the standpoint of delusion and fear and confusion, suffering is a parent that has two different children and one is aversion and the other is resistance. I think we do need to acknowledge really from the outset that the practice of renunciation is not very fashionable and it's not very attractive and it's not highly esteemed mostly in our culture even when, you know, some people may admire it as an ideal. And I I think it's so important to consider, you know, because if you read the teachings, if you read the discourses, the suttas, I mean, you're not going to get away from this word. And I think it's really important to reflect upon why renunciation is just given so much centrality and so much importance in this tradition and teaching. And one reason it's given so much centrality is because in this teaching, renunciation is actually seen as a practice of freedom. 
And rather than being presented as kind of dismal or bleak or depressing or lonely, the practice of renunciation is, in reality, described as a practice of happiness and joy, and that its fruition is the deepest happiness and joy. As Ajahn Chawan said, you know, if you let go a little, you have a little peace, if you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you have complete peace. The fruit of renunciation, I think, in reality, is a spaciousness of heart that's at peace with all things. Renunciation is a practice of fearlessness, and its fruition is a profound fearlessness. And it's a practice of wisdom, of learning to align ourselves with the way things actually are. And its fruition is unshakable wisdom. Renunciation is a practice of peace because it's about laying down the arguments about how things should be. And above all, renunciation is a practice of kindness about finding the ways to end all struggle and torment, all harshness and cruelty. And its fruit is liberation and freedom. And in truth, in this tradition, renunciation and liberation or freedom are words that are used interchangeably. They're not used separately. Now, I'd like to offer just a little bit of historical context for the practice and the path of renunciation. When the young prince Siddhartha, before he was a Buddha, went out of the palace, his protected life, and he encountered the world with aging and sickness and death, it was actually the sight of a renunciate in the crowd that rescued Siddhartha from a sense of despair and hopelessness. The first three heavenly messengers of aging, sickness, and death almost describe the landscape of unavoidable suffering or difficulties in this life. We do age. We do sicken. We do die. But the fourth heavenly messenger of the renunciate in the crowd was really a metaphor for a sense of path or a sense of possibility within this difficult world. Renunciation 2,600 years ago in the time of the Buddha was really a pretty extreme option. People would leave the world. They would leave their families. And in truth, when people did that, their families would hold funerals for them because they would not think that they, and they wouldn't probably ever have contact or see that person again. And renunciation in that time was considered on one level, a renunciation of all things that were considered worldly and almost holding in disdain all those things that were considered worldly. And those who would leave home and enter the renunciate's life, you know, would live in poverty, 
would live without possessions, would live really entrusting the world to take care of them. But they would own nothing. And it was this culture of the time of the Buddha, that existed at the time of the Buddha that the young Buddha really drew upon and in some, to a very large extent, continued because the Buddha spoke all the time about this movement from home into homelessness. And actually it's really important to remember that, at that historically at that time for many people to take up that invitation from the Buddha to join him in this, ho- in this homeless life, for many people it was a step into a greater freedom. You know, because it was an escape, actually. It was an escape from some of the rigidity of caste and social structures and status and identities that so governed people's lives during that time. And historically, we must mention for women 2,600 years ago, to take up that invitation to enter the homeless life was in reality perhaps the only escape from cultural and socially dictated roles in a time when a woman was almost nothing without marriage or children, where a woman could be sold into marriage, where she could be banished from home when she was old, when she could be stripped of respect if she didn't conform (coughs) to what was expected, when she was devoid of autonomy. And some of the poems of the earliest Buddhist nuns really speak about this level of freedom and And I think it's very important for us to kind of almost be able to cast our minds back to what it was like at that time and what this path really offered to these early Buddhist women. It was a sense of relief, of the possibility of another way of life and another way of being. And this evening I'd like to draw on some of this early poetry, if I may. One early Buddhist nun wrote, she said, Free, I am free by means of the three crooked things, mortar, pestle, and my crooked husband. I am free from birth and death and all that dragged me back. Another early Buddhist nun wrote, At last free, at last I am a woman free, no more tied to the kitchen, stained amidst the stained pots. No more bound to the husband who thought me less than the shade he wove with his hands. No more anger, no more hunger. I sat now in the shade of my own tree, meditating thus, I am happy, I am serene. So you really get the flavor that this wasn't just a kind of inner, inner domain of renunciation. It was a radical outer transformation And the sense of of emancipation felt by these women in entering into this homeless life was actually the relief of what was considered to be the misfortune of a female birth. And they, they were courageous women. And renunciation, I think, for all of us 
really ask for courage because every act of letting go, whether it is small or whether it is large, every act of letting go takes us into unknown territory. It takes us out of the security of what is familiar, of what is known. And this is actually the journey of renunciation, is to venture into that which is unknown. That unknown territory is a territory that is not governed by our endless endeavors to secure our sense of identity and self through the futile efforts of clinging, craving, and becoming. Because if we really look at what what clinging and identification is all about, it's all really about securing the sense of I am and I have and I know even, even when that territory is unsatisfactory. Now, through history, these women embarking, all women embarking on a path of awakening have been courageous and audacious women. And their dedication to liberation and to dignity has often been a lonely journey because historically compliance and not only historically. Compliance with conventional models and expectations has been rewarded with approval, but rarely with respect. It's not long ago I sat on a train going home and I'd just come from somewhere and I I happened to be sitting near this, this gentleman who was very curious, uh, a lot of questions, you know, about what I did and who I was. He says, what did your husband think? (laughs) Uh, And I (laughs) looked at him rather puzzled, you know, and he says, well, doesn't make you a very good wife, does it? (laughs) I thought, ah. You know, it's just not historical hmm? for everyone. Now, I think an authentic spiritual journey does ask of us that fearlessness to move into the unknown, the unfamiliar, to move from the familiar into the unfamiliar, to move from clinging to renunciation. It's a movement into homelessness that the Buddha really spoke about as a noble life, a noble life. Now, homelessness is very often associated with the monastic order, but actually, you know, you get a little taste of this homelessness when you come on retreat. I mean, I know that all of you have to make certain renunciations simply to come here and be here. Hmm? And when you're here, you have to make a lot more renunciations. I mean, you suddenly discover you're being asked to let go a lot of the avenues of distraction that can govern our lives. Silence is a small taste of letting go of identity. You know, none of us wears name tags advertising our roles or our status in life. When you're here, you let go of many of the mechanisms of control that can order our days. You know, all these things we do here on retreat, you know, schedules, silence, 
simplicity, they're all stealth mechanisms of renunciation. <laughs> you didn't know what you signed up for, but they are stealth mechanisms of renunciation. But centuries ago, the Buddha pointed out that leaving one's home or leaving the world did not a renunciate make. And any monk or nun will tell you quite honestly that there is plenty of clinging and craving aversion that can go on beneath the simplicity and the dignity of the robes. In who has the finest robes, a better hat, you know, who's got more dessert in their arms bowl? Views and opinions is a big one. So there is no monk or nun who will tell you that just putting on the robes has been the end of the journey of renunciation, that in fact it is often a beginning. And we know that despite all the efforts and the letting go that is needed to come on retreat, we know for ourselves that sitting on a cushion and walking slowly does also not entirely a renunciate make. That the forces of craving and the forces of aversion are powerful. You know, the habits of clinging and the habits of grasping can feel almost relentless, you know. Do I have the room and the roommate I want? Do I have the yogi job I want, you know? Do I have the weather I want? You know, the other interview group sounds like it's having much more fun. I should be in that one, you know? Now, none, I mean, let's just be honest here. There's a lot of this that goes on, isn't it, in our hearts and minds through the day, you know? Now, none of this is to be judged or condemned. But perhaps we see that the outer renunciations that we make on a retreat, you know, the silence, the schedule, the being with it, what is, it's really there to allow us to be more intimate and more aware of the energies that create suffering, of the energies of clinging, of the energies of craving and aversion that at times have felt impenetrable. And if anything at all, that awareness really helps us to be honest with ourselves. And I think of this so much of the practice, is actually just learning to be honest with ourselves. Now we might feel that because we don't live in a monastery or because we don't wear robes or live, that somehow renunciation is kind of irrelevant to us. But if, if we long for happiness, if we long for kindness, if we long for calmness, if we long for freedom, renunciation really has everything to do with us. We might begin to notice that every time we get entangled in craving and aversion and clinging, there's a couple of things that happen. One of the things that happens is we start to do a lot of storytelling. It starts to produce a lot of thinking, oh, that shouldn't be like that, I need that, I could get rid of that, you know, that person's doing that, and why are they doing that, and why, you know, why am I not? We start to do a lot of that storytelling and arguing. And the other thing that happens when we get entangled in craving and clinging aversion is we become immediately unhappy. 
because we start to struggle, we're suffering. And what this teaching always tells us is that the clue to happiness lies in unhappiness, that the clues to calmness lies in agitation. And isn't it true that pretty much everything in this life appears with the message already written on it? Love it deeply and let it go. Now there's a poem that speaks to this second dimension of renunciation, the renunciation of craving and aversion. The nun said, I gave up my house and set out into homelessness. I gave up my cattle and all that I loved. I gave gave up desire and hate. My ignorance was thrown out. I pulled out craving along with its root. Now I am quenched and still. There was a 6th century nun who spoke to, I think, some of the frustration that we can sometimes experience and the frustration she experienced after relinquishing so much and yet she found, continued to find the peace that she longed for so elusive. It's a poem this nun wrote. She said, I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bath water spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. Now I think sometimes that kind of frustration we can often relate to. You know, I know folks, we work really hard just to get here, just to find this precious small time of stillness. And yet you get here, you know, imagine perhaps that you're going to drop into rapture and bliss and you know, all of those lofty states. And instead, you find that still the mind can rage and the heart can feel uneasy. But each time, each single time, we are able just to let go of craving and aversion, this second layer of renunciation. We are actually putting out the fire of suffering. And in that moment, the heart is freed. I'd really like you to notice that. That when you can just put down in a moment any wave of craving or aversion, you can feel the freedom of that. And it is important that we experience and acknowledge and honor that taste of freedom and peace because that is really what gives such a sense of possibility in this practice. Now, it is true (laughs) that we don't usually have to look too far to find the waves, large and small, of craving. 
You know, that's not, not the gross craving, you know, of I need a new car, you know, or more money or a better house. You know, we find that the much more subtle waves of craving somehow embedded almost into our psyche, you know, the sense of lack, the sense of not being good enough, of not being enough, the restlessness of need to become, to become a better this or a better that, an improved me, you know, that which is based upon the rejection of ourselves. And we can see that every time we get in entangled in that sense of lack with all its judgment and, and disdain. It's as if we are kind of, every time we follow those urges, it's, it's as if we're reaffirming and reinforcing a sense of insufficiency, a lack of freedom. And what we do in this practice is we just learn Maybe we can just be still in the midst of the waves. You know, maybe we can feel those waves of insufficiency, that sense of lack, not good enough, arise. And instead of believing, giving so much credibility, so much authority to those waves, we learn perhaps we can just be a little bit more still and let the waves just roll over, just roll through to learn to rest with what is, and we taste the freedom of letting go of craving. It's not that I have let go of it, it is simply that it starts to fall away. You know, and we don't have to look very far sometimes to hear the whispers and shouts of aversion because isn't craving aversion just two different sides? of the same coin, you know. And again, it's not the grosser aversions, you know, of hatred, but the aversions of judgment, comparison, blame, intolerance, impatience. And sometimes we can just know them, know them, and not follow the whispers into avoidance or rejection. Because every time we do that, we again reaffirm and reinforce insufficiency. We can be still. We can be still. And it is really, that stillness within the waves is really laying claim to the same courage and the same steadfastness and the same fearlessness that that nun spoke of when she spoke of putting out the fire. And there is a happiness and a peace and a freedom born of that renunciation. For many of us, our first exposures to renunciation have often been involuntary. People we love die. We lose things. We experience disappointment of some of our dreams. We've been separated from someone we care for and love and we mourn the loss We experience the disappointment and the frustration of disappointment. We experience all the effects of impermanence. You know that some things don't last as long as we want them to. And people in events change in ways that we find hard to accept. 
We don't always get what we want. And the reality is that impermanence is always teaching us about renunciation. It's almost as if impermanence and renunciation are married to one another. But you know, the involuntary renunciation often leads us to associate renunciation only with pain. And I think that's often why we have this kind of bleak view of it. Because involuntary renunciation, it feels like something's been taken away from us. So we tend to associate renunciation with pain and desolation. But if we start to make those shifts inwardly from the demands that the world be a certain way, that things last when they cannot, when things stay the same, when they are always changing, if we can begin to move away from those demands, what we are moving into is a kind of more aligned rhythm, an aligned harmony with the way things are which is changing, which is impermanent. And all things are held in that, and we can begin to move from that sense of involuntary renunciation into a more natural grace, a natural, more natural grace, an alignment with the simple truth of this life, that truth that we are asked to live with. Loss, of course, remains sad. Disappointment and frustration are sad. But sadness is part of the fabric of loving and caring. It is different than feeling that something has been stolen from us. Sadness is part of the fabric of loving and caring. And voluntary renunciation is simply that willingness to embrace the sadness that comes with impermanence as well as the happiness that can come with impermanence. But it's aligning our hearts with the way things actually are. It is a timeless truth that every moment is changing. The world will not stand still because we ask it to. Within that impermanence is also the possibility of liberation, is also the possibility of freedom. Think of how many things we are so happy they can be impermanent. (laughs) Unwelcome self-images, judgment, blame, disdain. Think of all the things we are so happy that they are impermanent. But to understand that impermanence is not selective. It embraces all things. In Zen, this is my favorite koan of the last statement, Zen, my favorite Zen statement of the last couple of years. When a Zen teacher was asked the secret of their happiness and their radiance, and they answered, it is a complete unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. Isn't that great? The complete, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable, (laughs) which is life, basically. Which is life with everything in it. 
Because we see whenever we're in a state of non-cooperation with the unavoidable, we're in a state of argument. We're in a state of craving or aversion, in perpetual argument with the unavoidable. And often what we're arguing with is impermanence. We're often arguing with impermanence. On one level, that seems really foolish, doesn't it? As if impermanence is going to change because we argue with it. It, it's, but on another level, sometimes our arguments are very busy and very noisy, at least inwardly. But you know what? We need to learn to listen to those arguments, not as something bad or wrong, but to listen to those arguments as a messenger and as the fourth heavenly messenger. I think we should listen to every argument we're having with the moment as the fourth heavenly messenger delivering one simple instruction, one simple encouragement, let go. And it's not a prescription for passivity because, goodness me, we all know that there are realms of injustice and the unacceptable in this world that ask for our engagement and dedication to their transformation. But the engagement that truly makes a difference is very rarely born of craving and aversion. It's born of stillness and courage and commitment and the deep willingness to see things as they actually are. Letting go doesn't mean walking away from the difficult or the things that we fear because that's the shadow side of renunciation. Renunciation means the willingness to stay near and present with the difficult, but to have the commitment to end suffering, to cool the fires. There's a 12th century nun. She wrote, meditating at midnight, meditating at noon, a mind like autumn comes to the way's deep heart. Under motionless waves, Fish and dragons freely leap. In the sky without limits, only the moonlight stays. The first dimension of renunciation is the renunciation of entanglement, our entanglement with often the busyness of our own minds. The second dimension of renunciation is to let go of the agitation of craving and aversion. And the third dimension of renunciation, I think, is the most challenging and yet the most liberating dimension because it is the renunciation of self-view and all the clinging and pain that is born of self-view. And that is deeply a practice of freedom and its fruit is unshakable freedom. You know, it's probably clear to us how much fear and anxiety lies underneath clinging. Just as fear and anxiety leads us to heroically try and ensure the improvement and preservation of self. Just as self-view manifests and produces even more fear and anxiety. And then now one of the most profound invitations of this path and teaching is to see the emptiness of self-view. To see how self-view, the view of ourselves of the moment, is shaped and formed by what is clung to in the moment, giving substantiality to a view. Noticing I'm talking about seeing the emptiness of self-view. I'm not talking about annihilating self, 
not talking about negating self. What I'm talking about is seeing how self-view is formed and shaped moment to moment and how it does indeed and can become a prison for us. To begin to see, when nothing at all is grasped hold of, there is no formation of self-view. I mean, this is not complicated. You can see when I take hold of a judgment, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm just a schmuck. You know, when I take hold of a, 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 a an emotion of anger, I'm angry. You know, when I take hold of a, a thought of the future, I'm the planner. You know, we keep forming self-view. It's constantly changing. I mean, you've probably seen you've had like a hundred self-views today already. You know, you probably have another 20 before you go to bed. You know, you might be, have five more in the next 10 minutes. It's constantly changing. But this is the heart, actually, of the teaching of liberation. When the Buddha said so simply that nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Because he's really not talking about negating anything. He's talking about the freedom from self-view. The freedom from those, those kind of cages and those prisons of I am. Now this understanding of the emptiness of self-view has been discovered and celebrated by women over the ages. And I think this, this non-clinging is the most profound description of the noble and the homeless life. There was an old, run, old nun, she wrote this poem, she said, Above the highest peak of mountain way, the round moon is alone, cold and bright, pure and poor. It does not possess a single thing. If someone should come along and ask what this nun is doing, she sits for long hours on her meditation mat, enjoying herself. <laughs> and perhaps when we possess nothing at all or cling to nothing as mine, we too can sit for long hours simply enjoying ourselves. Simply enjoying ourselves. Perhaps we can begin to see that the, the degree of renunciation we're able to embrace in this life is the degree of happiness and peace and freedom we enjoy. Now, self and self view is a really curious creature. Sometimes it has such a long story, doesn't it? You know, it's such an old story of I am. It's historical, you know. Um, it goes back as far as we remember. Sometimes it began even before we were born. You know, I'm sad, I'm fearful, I'm inadequate, I'm, I'm amazing. That's a more rare one. <laughs> Sometimes the story of self-view is actually being told to us by others. You know, you are terrible. You know, you are inadequate. You know, you are, you are a failure. You are amazing, also more rare. But we also see that self-view is, this isn't always historical, that it has this kind of life of the moment, as I was talking about, shaped by what is clung to in the moment. And then here we are again, that same old territory. I'm terrible, I'm wonderful, I'm inadequate, you know, I'm a failure, and again, more rarely, I'm amazing. Mm -hmm. 
we can only know for ourselves where we are more prone to make our home. But self-view is sometimes revealed in the kind of tendencies that manifest in our life, the places that we're most prone to identify with. You know, and some of these are really, really, the kind of universal. The need to be right. The need to be approved of. The need to be loved. The need to be helpful. The need to be useful. The need to be needed. Some of us kind of a short list. We could compose a much longer list that is really kind of central to our self-views. And this is very so important for us to see because self-view is built most often upon the ground of insufficiency. You know, when there is more of a ground of sufficiency, of completeness, of wholeness, there's very little inclination to form self-view. Very little inclination to form self-view. And you know, everything we do in this practice is actually learning to stand in the ground of sufficiency. Everything we do in this practice is learning to stand on the ground of confidence and completeness and freedom. The whole of this practice is in the service of that. The whole of this practice is almost to forsake the sense of impossibility that is born of insufficiency. And the freedom of that renunciation is an unshakable freedom. It is a fearlessness and it is a homelessness in which we find our home in all things. There's a couple of short poems I'd like to end with. I was passionate. These are by also ancient nuns. I was passionate, filled with longing. I searched far and wide. But the day that the truthful one found me I was at home. Another nun wrote, understand the ordinary mind and realize one is naturally complete. Ask urgently who you were before your father and mother were born. When you have seen through the method that underlies them all, the mountain blossoms and flowing streams will rejoice with you. We have just a moment quietly to go. to send you out with the last poem. All things are too small to hold me. I am so vast. In the infinite, I reach for the uncreated. I have touched it. It undoes me wider than wide. Everything else is too narrow. You know, you know this well, you who are also there.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.